Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. So in these crazy times that we're living in, we rightly remind one another of the importance of prayer. That's one of the reasons Jeremy has this whole sermon series on prayer right now. And even in peaceful times too, right? Christians will ask, so how's your prayer life? As just a gentle accountability question to encourage someone into a more faithful devotional life. It's a, it's a good and helpful question. But as worthy as these exchanges are, Scripture reminds us that there is a prayer life that matters most in times like these. And sometimes, you know, in our self-absorbed way, we, we, we start thinking the Bible is all about us instead of about Jesus. And, and sometimes we assume that the prayer life that matters the most in life is ours. But I'm here to tell you this morning, it's not. The prayer life that matters the most is not yours, and it's not mine. The prayer life that matters the most is that of the Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. You know, you can tell a lot about somebody by listening to their prayer. Two men were adrift in an open boat in the ocean, and it really did look like the end. I mean, for days they had been at sea, drifting. Nobody had come to rescue them. They're dehydrated, they're hungry, and the sun is beating down, and they knew the end was about to come. And so one of the men knelt down in the boat, and he began to pray, Oh, Lord, I've broken every one of your commandments. I've been a hard drinker, a carouser, a liar, a cheat. But if you spare my life right now, I promise you that I will never again. And right about that time, his friend tapped him on the shoulder and said, wait a minute, Jack, don't go too far. I think I hear a boat coming. <laughs> you know, some people, when they pray, it sounds like they're trying to make a deal with God, right? You can tell a lot about somebody by listening to their prayers. Bill Glass was an all-pro defensive end for the Cleveland Browns ages ago, really. And, and once Bill retired, he went into ministry. But he had a son named John who was also a pretty good football player, big bruiser uh, in, in high school, uh, the apple of his father's eye. But then John had a knee injury in a game that put him out for months. And one day, Bill came home and, and couldn't find him. He, he went upstairs to his son's room, and, and the door was cracked open a bit, and his son was on the bed just sobbing as if his heart would break. And Bill said, as I listened to my son cry, I wanted to do something, but, but I didn't know what to say. So I stood outside that door, and I listened to him sob, and I said to myself, I know, I'll go into my son, and I'll say to him, John, it's okay, John. We're going to lick this thing. We're, we're going to ask the Lord to lead us. We're going to find the best doctors, but don't you worry, son. We're going to lick this thing. So Bill finally pushed the door open and walked in, but then he was overcome with emotion, and the, and the big, you know, all-pro defensive end just starts weeping himself. He put his hand on his son's shoulder, and John looked up and noticed his dad crying and said, Dad, Dad, it's okay. We're going to lick this thing. We'll ask the Lord to lead us. We're going to be all right. We'll find the best doctors. God's got this, right? In other words, the son said to the father what the father was going to say to the son. And when you look in John 17, something kind of like that is happening. We see a relationship so intimate 
that before Jesus spoke the prayer out loud, it was already in the mind of the Father. What a, what a beautiful relationship. And more importantly, it's the relationship God the Father wants us to have with Him through our prayer life. He wants us to be able to pray, Father, draw me so close to you by your grace that I, I make no requests, I utter no words, I make no appeal to you except the request which you would have me to make. See, gang, prayer is not an exercise in getting. Prayer is an, ex is, is an experiment in intimacy. Does that make sense? And in John 17, we learn a lot about Jesus' intimate relationship with his heavenly Father. We see Jesus interceding for his followers because you can tell a lot about somebody by listening to their prayers. But before we get to John 17, I want you to consider a couple of verses you're going to see up on the screen. Paul said this in Romans 8. He said, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And the writer of Hebrews, over in Hebrews 7, said, Therefore he, that is Jesus, therefore Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So to intercede is to approach one person on behalf of another, bearing a request or a need. When one sibling says to another sibling, Go ask mom if we can have some candy. What they're asking for is an intercessor. Be the go-between, right? When a person seeking work at company X asks someone there, hey, put in a good word for me with the company boss, that person is hoping for an intercessor. And in Christian terms, intercession is prayer to God on behalf of another. We should be doing this for each other, of course. But more importantly, we need to know that Jesus is doing this for us all the time. He's our access to God. He's the great high priest who enters the Father's presence. And, and through the merits of his blood that has secured everything we need, he carries our needs before the throne of grace. He prays for us that our faith will not fail. Now, we shouldn't conclude that because Jesus asks the Father for our needs, that somehow Jesus and the Father are not on the same page. Does that make sense? You know, that, that somehow what God wants for us is, is different from what Jesus wants for us. And that Jesus has to plead with the Father to try to get, you know, convince God to cave in and give us what we need. That's not the way prayer works at all. God's not a reluctant father who needs to be persuaded to give us what we need. He's happily eager to bless. But in the redemptive purposes of God, he has Jesus serve as a mediator. A, a go-between between us and God is, is Jesus. And that's, that's a good thing, right? I know others who were taught from a young age to pray to certain saints, you know, certain men or women who had long passed on with the belief that somehow these dead saints could intercede for us, be a go-between for us, right? But between us and God the Father. 
But this is based on the traditions of man, not on, not on the Word of God. There's not a single verse of Scripture that says we are to have anyone that has passed away intercede for us. There's not a single verse of Scripture that says they can even if you ask them to. Jesus is the only mediator there is. Paul wrote, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's our faithful advocate before God and the very best prayer alive, right? So the prayer life that matters the most is not ours. It's the prayer life of our Lord Jesus Christ. His prayers matter the most and do the most good. He always prays in faith with perfect knowledge of our needs. He always prays in complete accord with the will of God. And John 17, which takes place right before the arrest and the trials and the travesty of the cross, John 17 is Jesus praying passionately, interceding for you and for me. We've often called Matthew 6 the Lord's Prayer, but I suggest a better name for that one is the disciples' prayer. It was, it was Jesus teaching his disciples a framework, a skeleton outline for praying. I think the Lord's Prayer more properly is John 17. It's the longest prayer on record that we have that Jesus made. We don't have time today to unpack the entire chapter verse by verse, but I want to comment quickly on five basic elements of Jesus' prayer in John 17. And here's the first. He prayed, Father, protect them. In verse 11, he says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Here Jesus prays that in the face of a hostile world, we will be guarded and protected, spiritually secured by the Father's name. Jesus may not be here physically, but we are protected by the power of the name of God. I'll be honest, I get very nervous when people try to connect the viability of the church, the power of the church, the success of the church, the safety of the church to a political party or a human movement. Beloved, the church is not protected by statutes or laws established by legislation or a group of judges. Jesus said, Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. We are protected by the power of the name of God and God alone. As followers of Jesus, we aren't permitted the luxury of compromise with a world that's evil and under the devil's power. There's, there's no way. Nor are we permitted the safety of disengagement from the world. Our task is not to be withdrawn from the world, nor to be confused with the world. Our task is to remain in the world, maintaining witness to the truth, absorbing all the malice this old world can muster, protected by the Father himself in response to the prayer of Jesus. He has prayed and is praying at this very moment for your protection, for our protection as a church. Secondly, Jesus prays, Father, sanctify them. Sanctify them. In verse, verse 17, he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Here, Jesus prays that we will so know the truth that it will make us holy. It will set us apart from the world and sin and, and consecrate us in devotion to God. All of which begs the question, of course, how can we know the truth if we don't know 
the word of God. Do you remember that TV commercial, that PSA from the 1980s? Somebody would hold up an egg and they'd say, this is your brain. And they would crack the egg, throw it in a hot skillet, and you'd hear it sizzle as it fried. And then they would say, this is your brain on drugs. Any questions? I'd suggest a slight revision for the 2020s. Somebody holds up an egg and says, this is your soul. And they crack it and they throw it in the hot skillet and they say, this is your soul online. Any questions? No, it's true. The internet can be an unprecedented tool for good. I'm not, I'm not claiming anything else. But if unfettered human knowledge were sufficient to make us complete and equipped for life, beloved, surely by this point we would all be paragons of wisdom and virtue, right? Clearly we need something more than our phones to keep our souls from sizzling away in the frying pan of infinite connectivity. I'm not going to ask for an amen, but I want you to at least chew on it. The answer isn't to go off the grid, though. The answer is to redeem what's out there, to realize that God has ordained other better sources of wisdom we can barely see if our eyes are conditioned only for the glare of our screens. Brett McCracken is a Christian author and editor who wrote a little book titled The Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World. I highly recommend the book, and I would encourage you to pull out your phone for a second and redeem it. Use it for some good and take a picture of this screen. I wish I had time to cover this in depth, and maybe we can cover this in a Wednesday night class at some point. But his basic premise is, if we want to be shaped by godly wisdom, we must discipline ourselves to manage our information intake, just like we manage our food intake. You're familiar with the idea of the food pyramid, right, for healthy eating? Well, the wisdom pyramid ranks information sources for the Christian in a manner that will foster spiritual health. It, it always amazes me. I see Christians that would never think of putting a hostess Twinkie in their mouth. And yet they will run pell-mell to the internet and social media to digest the latest junk food offerings there and confirm their biases, whatever they are. See, the foundation of the pyramid, as, as McCracken defines it, the source we should consume most often, that row at the bottom, is the Bible. It's our daily bread. And the tip-top of the pyramid, which we should ingest much more cautiously, includes the internet and social media. In between, McCracken considers the place of the church, nature, and beauty, and books. I love his idea of breaking bread with the dead. It's important to read not only from our generation, but from generations that have passed on long ago. Those are valuable sources of wisdom. I highly recommend the book. Bottom line, the, 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 the best way we will ever know the truth about God is in his word. So time alone in God's word is essential for a robust prayer life, right? I call it the original Facebook, my face in his book every day. Another way Jesus prays is in verses 20 and 21. He says, Father, unify them. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Maybe they also, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's a prayer for future 
disciples. It's a specific prayer for you and me. Right now, in this time, we're living in those who will believe, right? And, and what's the prayer? That all of them may be one, just as God the Father and Jesus are one. You have to forgive me if you've heard me tell the story before, but comedian Emo Phillips tells this story. He says, in conversation with a person I had recently met, I asked, are you Protestant or Catholic? My new acquaintance replied, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. Oh, me too, I said. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Northern Baptist, he replied. Me too, I shouted. We continued to go back and forth. Finally, I asked, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912 or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879? And he replied, oh, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic. <laughs> Is that not the way we are in the kingdom at times with one another? Jesus knows that because of sin, believers so quickly, so easily break their unity. And so he prays that God will keep and protect our unity from Satan and the forces of evil. Satan loves to see the church and Christians have disunity. He loves to see fights and splits and schisms and heresies and arguments and conspiracy theories that drive believers apart. And we've seen that happen over and over and over again in the church in America in the last several years. And the Father grieves. The Father grieves, beloved. Do you remember the Russell Crowe movie, Gladiator? He plays the part of a general named Maximus, who's a glorious war hero. But at the beginning of the movie, he comes to Rome dirty and shackled. Maximus comes to Rome as a slave. That's the premise of the movie Gladiator. Maximus eventually goes to the magnificent Colosseum to face the elite Roman warriors. And the games open with this reenactment of the Battle of Carthage. The gladiators led by Maximus are all foot soldiers and they are cast as the hapless Carthaginians. It's a stage for slaughter. They are marched out down a dark passageway into brilliant sunlight and met with a roar of bloodlust. And Maximus shouts to his men, stay together. He assembles them in a tight circle in the center of the arena, back to back, shields aloft, spears pointed up and out. And again, he shouts, whatever comes out of that gate, stay together. Well, what comes out of that gate is swift and sleek and full of terror. Chariot after chariot thunder forth. One gladiator strays from the circle, ignoring Maximus' order, and he's cut down immediately. Maximus shouts once more, stay together. And the instinct to scatter is very strong, but Maximus exerts his authority and they resist the impulse to scatter. The, the chariots circle closer and closer and closer and spears and arrows rain down on the men's wooden shields and the chariots are about to cinch the knot and right then Maximus shouts, now. And the gladiators attack and they decimate the Romans. Commodus, the evil emperor, 
caustically remarks to the game's organizer from the stands where he is. He says, my memory of Roman history is rusty, but didn't we beat Carthage the first time? Beloved, whatever comes out of that gate, stay together. That needs to be a rallying cry for the church in our day. We are, we are so quick to react to pseudo news events on social media and flame other believers because they don't do things or believe things the way we want. But we have as our leader one who came as a servant and we know the truth. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and he promises that these gates of hell will not overcome his church. That doesn't mean we're not distinct from one another. Oh, we are for sure. But we are to be one in purpose, in love, and in action. One faith, one hope, one baptism, one God and Father of all. One in joint submission to him. Beloved, I beg of you, whatever comes out of the gate, stay together. Then Jesus prays, Father, multiply them. Verse 22, he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world, that word again, unity, to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. See, Jesus doesn't pray that we circle up in unity and then ignore the rest of the world, does he? Instead, he prays here that the testimony of a unified church that knows and lives out the truth of the gospel will lead the world to know and believe that truth, that the church will be multiplied because of our unified love. It will be a compelling witness to the world. What does he say? To let the world know. Jesus is praying here, Father, I, I want the world to know the gospel. I was in a dinner conversation with some people back over the holidays, uh, mostly non-believers, and the topic turned to church growth. Uh, they were wondering out loud, why, why are people at churches inviting me to church? Why do they think I need to go to church? Why, why can't they just leave me alone? To which another person at the table said, well, they invite you to church because it's all about money. The pastor wants his church to grow bigger so he'll have more money. And my heart sank. I bet maybe you've got some family and friends that deep down believe the same thing. Jesus wanted the church to grow, to multiply, but it didn't have anything to do with money. To let the world know that you have sent me to get their money? No. To let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me, he prayed. I love that phrase, even as. You might want to underline that. See, if Jesus, if Jesus was just a human teacher telling us how to live so that if we lived a good enough life, God would bless us and take us to heaven when we die, well, well then in that case, God would love us to the degree that we deserve. So if you live, say, that much of a good life, then God would love you that much. If you live this much of a good life, then God would love you this much. If you live that good of a life, God would love you that much. It's the idea that God would always love you to the degree that your life warranted, to the degree that you deserve. But that's not what it says here. 
It says here, God loves us not as we deserve, but he loves us as Jesus would deserve. Jesus is praying, I want the world to know that you have loved them even as, to the same degree, in other words, that you love me. Think about it. This is the gospel. Think of the magnitude of the Father's love for the Son. Only the Father knows what Jesus went through to save us. Only the Father knows how brave Jesus was, just how much he gave up to come to this earth and live and die for us. God, the Father's love for his Son, it would be infinite. It would be, it would be eternal, infallible. It would be unvarying. And in this prayer, Jesus is asking the Father to help us see that the Father loves us just as much as he loves Jesus. He loves you even as, in quality and in quantity, even as he loves his own son. And that, beloved, that becomes our motivation for the church to grow when I see how much God the Father loved me through Jesus, what he did to reach me when I was lost, then it motivates me to reach out to somebody else who's lost. What did our pastor emeritus Greg Wallace always used to say? The only thing worse than being lost is being lost and no one's looking for you. Jesus prayed that our church would look for the lost and love them and so multiply. And then Jesus prayed in verse 24, Father, glorify them. He said, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus prays that we will see his glory to a certain part so that we might share his glory. That's, that's, that's a great life's purpose. If you were to write a mission statement for your life, you could do a lot worse than this. I'm called to see his glory and I'm called to share his glory. I think that's investing in eternity. There's only two things that are eternal. You know that. You know that. It's the word of God and the souls of men and women. The rest of what we invest in is not going to last. But when I invest my heart in seeing God's glory through his word and sharing God's glory as a witness to others, I am fulfilling what he created me to do. I'm doing his will for my life. You can learn a lot about somebody when you hear them pray. In John 17, we learn a lot about Jesus. We learn about the things that burden Jesus' heart. These are what he had on his heart right before he was crucified, right? That we be protected, sanctified, unified, multiplied, glorified. This, this prayer also teaches us to rearrange our own prayer priorities, I think. You know, rather than only requesting material prosperity or political victory or physical health, we need to be praying like Jesus would pray for the security, the holiness, the unity, the increase, and the enhanced glory and beauty of the church. 
Now, somebody might ask, does this mean then that it doesn't really matter if I pray? I mean, I mean, if Jesus, we've already established, he's the most important prayer. If he's interceding for me before the Father, it really doesn't matter if I pray then, right? I mean, what are my prayers compared to Jesus, right? But consider this. It was only a few moments later, one page turn in the Gospels in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus asked Peter, James, and John to pray and keep watch. Now, we are still called to be vigilant in our prayer life. One of the ways you can do this is through a simple prayer journal. I've done this for right at about 40 years. <laughs> Certainly not because I'm spiritual or even a good Christian. Not at all. It's because I forget. If you, don't, if you tell me something important and you don't see me write it down, trust me, it's gone. If you see me write it down, I might have a chance of remembering what you're talking about. I love the words of the prophet Samuel in his farewell address. He said, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. So as for me, a prayer journal kind of helps me keep on track where maybe I'm not sinning quite so much in that area of my life. Another way to be vigilant in your prayer life is to get involved in our intercessory prayer ministry. Right now we have a prayer room that's right back there just outside these, these doors. And intercessors can come during the day and pray over prayer requests, intercede for others. But we want to expand this year to involve more people, to develop prayer teams for specific ministries and events. We want the prayer ministry not to be some sideline ministry alongside of everything else going on. We want it to be the fuel, beloved, that empowers all other ministries. We want to permeate our church with prayer, to see such a culture of prayer arise in our church. There's a couple of ladies that have been helping me with this endeavor, and I, I, I think they're here today, Linda Vogel and Tara Cassidy. And if what I just described describes your heart as well, I want you to go see, before you leave here today, I want you to go see either Linda Vogel or Tara Cassidy and say, I'm interested. Tell me more. Help me know how I could get involved in the intercessory prayer ministry. Are, are you guys here? Is, Lin, is Linda here? Does anybody see Linda and Tara? So I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm seeing a hand up. There's Tara right there. Is Linda here, anybody? Back, back over there somewhere. There she, oh, way back in the back. See, that way she can kind of cover all of you in prayer all at the same time, see? So you, you, want, you want to be able to get involved in something like that? Go find one of those two gals before you leave today. Another way to ramp up your prayer fires is to pray out loud with somebody else. Yeah, we've been saying that you learn a lot about somebody by the way they pray. I wonder if that's why so many people don't want to pray out loud. Because when you pray, you're opening up your heart for the Lord to see and for anybody else to see with an earshot, right? And that can be kind of scary. I get it. But the more you pray out loud with others, the more you want to pray out loud with others. It's, it's a way of mentoring discipling others and learning from others as well. Let me ask you the question, when's the last time you learned something about how to pray from hearing someone else pray out loud? Many of you will remember Helene Mulman. 
And the beautiful conversational prayer language she used in our worship services when she would talk to the Father and lead us in prayer as a congregation. Seek somebody out like that. Somebody from your Bible study class or a Bible study you're at in, during the week and just ask, hey, can we, can we begin to pray together? Hey, can, can I apprentice under you in prayer? Could we just spend a little bit of time that way? This I know. When life is hard and disaster seems to loom everywhere, remember, Jesus is praying for you. From this best of all prayers, offered by the best of all prayers, we gain peace and hope. We're assured of this, the church will be fortified, sanctified, unified, multiplied, and glorified. Because Jesus has prayed that it would be so. And his prayers, beloved, never fail. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.